Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Uh, joining us today is Dr. Anjani Amlati. Uh, she's a board-certified child and adolescent and adult psychiatrist. Uh, she takes into account people's biological, psychological, and social aspects in regards to their mental health. Uh, she treats all different types of uh, disorders from depression to anxiety to ADHD, schizophrenia, bipolar. Uh, Dr. Amladi, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you feeling? I'm doing well, and thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Now, uh, first, we got to start off with your chair before we get into anything, because <laughs> it looks like a gaming chair, like, like you play Call of Duty or like Fortnite. What? Talk to me about this chair right now. <laughs> I wish I was that cool. No, I don't game. What, how I ended up with this chair is um, we have my nephew and his girlfriend that live with us, and they're in their early 20s, and they game. And so when I was complaining about switching from in-office work to working from home, I had this, you know, this cute pink rhinestone chair, but it was not functional at all. And now that I'm working from home 10, 12 hours a day, I needed a good chair. And this was the chair that they recommended. So that's why you see a gaming chair. I wish I was that cool, but I assure you I am not. Okay, so I, I assume because I know from reading a little bit about you that you have written a children's book. So I didn't know if all the, the, the cute way it was decorated was to appeal also to children. Can you tell us a little bit about the children's book and why you wrote that? And Yeah, absolutely. So like you said in the intro, the vast majority of folks that I see are 17 and under. My subspecialty is humans, so 12 and under. And when the pandemic first started, which I can't believe has now been over a year, parents and kiddos were coming into my office to see me and having a very difficult time with how to broach the subject of explaining to their children what's happening in the world right now and how do you open that conversation. So when they would come in and ask me for resources on how to open the door to this conversation, I spent a lot of time looking at different resources and just wasn't finding anything that was really helpful. So at that moment, I thought, what better person to create a resource like this so that parents can have these really important conversations with their kids? So I did it myself because I wasn't finding what I was looking for. That's how that came about. I love it. You know, it's interesting because I have friends with kids and it's to me during the pandemic, the parents were more anxious and more up in arms than the kids were. The kids seemed to be more resilient, you know, at times not even really knowing what was going on unless they were picking up on their parents' uh, emotional state at the time. Are kids more resilient than we think? Absolutely, 100%. So I would say that the vast majority of my kiddos, and I think kids are just more flexible by nature. I think they have a lot more resilience. They have less rigidity. 
since the adults who have been doing things a certain way for a long period of time. I think inherently kids are just a little bit more flexible. And of course, all of my kids at some point in their experience with the pandemic have struggled. But for the most part, they've really excelled and made the most out of really difficult situations and have been flexible and less rigid in ways that a lot of my adults really struggled with. Yeah, I, I hear about so many kids struggling with depression and ADHD and other uh, challenges. It, to me, it seems like depression, anxiety, um, and narcissism in, in regards to adults. Those are the three things that everyone is talking about. And I, I feel like what's getting swept under the rug are more subtle emotions like sadness and worry. For the listeners, can you separate the difference between depression and sadness? Absolutely. So, and I think this is a really important discussion to have because just because someone is sad does not mean that they're depressed, right? And vice versa. So somebody who is actually has a depressive disorder is not just sad. It's so much more than that. So when we talk about severity, we talk about whether sadness and other symptoms meet criteria for depression, what we look at are one, specific target symptoms, and two, how social and occupational, and in cases of kiddos who are in school, academic functioning has changed. So people who are, we all get sad, right? We all have moments in our lives where things are not going the way that they should be. And a natural response to a difficult time is sadness. Sadness is temporary, it's short-lived, it goes away on its own with minimal intervention, and there is not a large change in social or occupational or academic functioning. So there's no real lasting deficit that affects our ability to function optimally. That is the difference between just being sad versus being depressed. So target symptoms are one of the things that we look at when we're trying to determine clinically if somebody has a depressive disorder or if they're just sad. So target symptoms of depression, for example, are low energy, difficulty with concentration, suicidal thoughts, the loss of interest in activities previously enjoyed, not finding joy in things that we used to be able to, poor sleep, and the list kind of goes on from there. But you can tell that there's a much longer list to meet criteria for depression, and it's, it varies, um, it's very, very different than just being sad. Right, because uh, watching a movie could make us sad, and but yeah. that sadness doesn't linger for weeks or months or, or even years, whereas okay. there might be something chemical, sociological, and, and physical happening that could cause depression. Can you just, you know, in a brief way, address what could be triggering or contributing to depression from those three aspects, when we're talking about the social aspect, the, the biological and, and the social, how, how are those contributing to depression? And then where does psychiatry come in on that? Great question. So if you, if you think of the biological, psychological, and social 
um, pieces as a Venn diagram, not one thing just contributes to someone being depressed. It's a constellation of things, a compilation of things, if you will. So for example, if we're talking about the biological aspect, what we're talking about is genetics. We're talking about the way our DNA is built, we're talking about genetics, we're talking about family history, we're talking about things that we have no control over. These are things that we are born with. When we talk about psychological factors, what we're talking about are risk factors. So is there a history of trauma, for example, and the ACEs study, the adverse childhood events study is a really good example of what types of trauma can cause people to be more prone to developing depression, parental divorce, parental incarceration, abuse, neglect, um, all sorts of different kinds of trauma is an example of that. And social aspects are things that are, that are contributing that are directly in our environment. For example, our relationships, like as a child, for example, our relationship with our parents, our relationship with our peers, getting bullied at school, um, things like that, that create a social environment that's either positive or negative or somewhere in between. And all of these things contribute to in some way, your risk towards developing something like depression. You brought up neglect, and it made me think about relationships. There are, you know, I, I've heard of kids who, you know, the girl doesn't call them back or there's a breakup, and they're completely undone for weeks, maybe months. It, it, you know, the, we, we don't see the resiliency there. Other people, they break up, and, and they seem to bounce back the next day. It's, What's the, what's, what's the difference there? Why do some people seem to handle uh, rejection uh, more effectively than others? That's a great question. And it's multifactorial like many things are. So one, you hit the nail on the head as a resilience factor. And, there's, and it's, the interesting thing about resilience is that we often think that resilience is something that someone just has or doesn't have. The truth is, is that it's a little bit of both. There are some people that are naturally more resilient than others, and resiliency skills be taught. For example, dialectical behavioral therapy, or DBT, which was created by Marshall Lanahan, is a really good example of a skills-based therapeutic modality that increases resilience, increases frustration tolerance, and builds resiliency skills, for example. So it's, it's a mix of, of both. And we are much more likely to demonstrate behaviors that are taught to us in a similar way that we've absorbed them as children. So for example, if our parents are inherently more resilient people and modeled that for us as a child, we're more likely to pick up on that and use that in the future. What is that? When you said model that as a child, what, what does that look like? Can you give us an example of a parent modeling resiliency? Sure. So let's just say, uh, let's, let me think of an example. Think about during the holidays when things are really hectic, people are often on edge, they're in a rush, they got a lot of stuff to do. Let's say, for example, we're in the car, we're going to the mall, and we're looking for parking. 
if you are a child watching a parent driving a car, let's say, who's circling around the parking lot, you've all been there waiting for a spot to open, and says, in the narrative goes, I'm never gonna find a spot, this is terrible, I don't know why we're doing this, this isn't worth my time, this is a stupid get together, blah, 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 right? Versus a parent who models something more positive, like we haven't found a parking spot yet, but somebody's going to have to leave eventually. And if we're patient, we will eventually find a spot. It may not be close, it may not be far, but we will eventually find a spot. We will get what we need, and it's going to be a really great get together. That's the difference. That's what I mean by modeling. So it's it's about like how reframing the events in our lives. It sounds like. Yeah, and how we demonstrate how we deal with difficult situations to our kids. So one of the ways that, then one of the reasons why therapy, for example, is so helpful is that individual therapy, group family, group therapy, family therapy, it all has a, has a basis in relationships, right? So we don't live in a vacuum, we all have relationships with people that are around us and how we navigate those relationships has has a very, very large role in the way that we develop as children into young adults and into adulthood. I know you're not a couples therapist, but you know, you brought up a, a very great, uh, very great point. Um, it, uh, an interesting point of, you know, everything exists within relationships, within context, and I remember watching a, a video yesterday and uh, this woman was talking about how she wants to stay single for a while to, to get herself right, to be ready for a relationship where I feel like the only way for you to um, become more effective or learn boundaries or how to be, live in a relationship is to actually be in one versus thinking you have to get prepared for one. And I know that there's a, there's a gray area of you probably do want to take time after a breakup, but the idea that you have to get everything together and be 100%, I feel like um, is the other extreme of things. Right. And, and you're absolutely right. The, the, the gray area is where the vast majority of life exists, right? So while I do agree that, you know, for people just got out of a relationship and haven't had time to reflect on what went well in that relationship, what may have not gone as well in that relationship. If you jump into a new relationship without having had the opportunity to reflect on that relationship, you're missing out on an opportunity to do things differently next time. And if, if that pattern for example is not recognized and corrected, then you bring that with you into each relationship that, that you eventually get into. And, and, and in the, you need to hit the nail on the head. The answer is not to stay single forever to work on every single thing that you would like to work on. Because the truth is that there's a lot of things that you may not notice about yourself until you're in a relationship with another person. And we all do it. We all do it in our relationship. We bring out personality aspects and behaviors and characteristics of people just by nature of, of being around them. So if you're by yourself all the time, you don't really have the opportunity to learn what it's like to be you in a relationship. 
Yeah, it's so true. Like who I am when it's just uh, my girlfriend and I or who I am uh, when I'm around my mom or when I'm around my friends from high school, they bring out different aspects of my personality. So it mm-hmm. really who we are, it does change with our environment and uh, the context. Uh, personal question for you, because I know you're married and uh, you're a mom. You're also like a fur mom. You're, you're, you, what does that mean? I like give a dog. Oh, we got a lot of animals. We have a small, we have a small petting zoo, I guess, if you will, going on over here. <laughs> that sounds like guinea pigs and chickens. Like, hold on, what's the whole range of animals floating around over there? So, full disclosure, so when I was a kid, I always wanted to grow up and rescue animals, always. So, we are living my dream, and my husband was just crazy enough to put up with, with my dream. We have um, a cow, we have two llamas, we have four potbelly pigs, we have four goats, three cats, and four dogs. <laughs> okay, so there's a lot of memes out there about cat ladies. There's a lot of <laughs> memes out there about people who own dogs. But I don't know if anybody's touched on people who own llamas. Like, that's a whole other... Yeah. That's a that's a specialty right there. <laughs> I'm assuming you're not from Sacramento. That that's what that says to me. You're you're you had to be from somewhere else. Actually, I'm I'm close. I'm from very close to Sacramento. I actually grew up in the Bay Area, but when I was a kid, um, my mom's originally from Hawaii, and a lot of our family members had property out there with animals and things. So that's where the the whole desire to have a petting zoo when I grew up came from was I've been around animals ever since I was a kid. So where does psychiatry come in, come in a a picture for you? Because I would imagine someone who grew up with a lot of pets would be more of a people person versus psychiatry. I don't, I view that as more medical than relational and and i know it's it's not the truth but why psychiatry and not psychology i guess is my question you know what that's a really good question you know i consider myself fairly lucky that from the time i was small i knew i always knew like when when i mean small i mean like when i was five i always knew that i wanted to be a doctor i don't know why i don't really know how that came came about for me but I knew that that's just something that I really wanted to do. Um, and so as I grew up in elementary school, middle school, high school, I realized that I really loved math and science. And then mixing that with my desire to go to medical school and become a doctor, I didn't actually know that I wanted to be a psychiatrist until I started my rotations in medical school and realized that Although I really love science, I also really love working with people. And so it just seemed like a natural kind of melding or progression of my education to just pick psychiatry because I, I really, really enjoy it. I really love it. I find that people who uh, become very specific in their field, there's typically a question that they're trying to answer right? Like there's, there's, there's one lingering thing that bothers them or bothers you 
that you're like, I don't understand why, why this is happening, why they're doing this or why this system exists in such a way. Why can't we just fix that thing? Is there a lingering question for you that you're trying to solve or that did um, exist for you and, and do you have solved? When, do you mean like when I'm seeing patients? Um, I, so for me, like I have a master's in counseling psychology and yeah. one of the, and I think about getting my PhD, but one of my motivating factors was why are black men committing suicide uh, at the rate they are, even though at the time the, the, weights for, the rates for white men were much higher, but um, because of, a lot of black men uh, end their lives by suicide, like death by cop or through accident and, mm -hmm. and different things like that. That was my motivating question. Like, I also wanted to help other people in other realms, but what was motivating me was I had questions about that specific aspect of uh, psychology or, or human behavior. And I just, I wonder mm -hmm. if there was something you experienced or saw growing up where you're like, that I don't understand that thing. And I, I would like mm -hmm. to know more about that to answer that question. Oh, sure. It's a great question. So I grew up in the Bay Area, which means that I spent a lot of time in San Francisco, um, just by default of where I ended up growing up. And I always wondered as a, as a very young child, why homelessness existed? Why in a country where we have such amazing resources and, you know, I thought as a young child, everybody has a house, right? Because when you grow up in the, in the suburbs, you just assume that everybody has a house until you go into different cities and maybe less um, socioeconomically advantaged areas. And you realize that there are many people that don't have houses. And why is that? You know, why, mom, why is that gentleman over there standing on the street corner talking to himself in dirty clothes, right? Why does suffering exist? And how, as one individual human, can I address suffering in people who aren't able to express their voice for whatever reason? Either it be medical illness, mental illness, lack of you know, education, whatever that reason might be. The whole purpose and the whole reason and why I love what I do, the drive is to alleviate suffering because there's just so much of it and pervasively in society. And if as one individual human, I can play a healing role in any positive way, it's, it's worth it for me. S such a great mission. Uh, I I'm glad that somebody's on it because I, I live in LA and it the numbers seem to be growing. And, you know, there's, I was with a friend and, you know, it broke my heart. You know, we were driving through a certain neighborhood and there were a bunch of tents and, you know, he said, you know, if you're living on the streets, then you, you're, you, you're, you're choosing to, to be homeless. Like, there's just too, there's too many opportunities here in America for anybody to be homeless uh, for any reason other than their own. And so I would assume that you've explored the question, what types of factors, because there are no answers, right? There, there's no two plus two doesn't equal four here. 
but what types of factors are you finding are is contributing to the homeless population and what percentage are struggling with mental health? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I see clinically significant depression and anxiety and PTSD and substance use and trauma. Trauma is such a huge part of what I see. Um, and what I have seen clinically is how negative things like neglect and abuse and just things that people, children specifically, have zero control over have affected them and the way that they cope, right? Some people have amazing families and amazing resources and inherent resilience and things like that and are able to take advantage of whatever opportunities kind of come their way and they make it out the other side. Not everybody is so lucky. And I think one of the things that I really hope this pandemic has created for people is a sense of empathy and compassion because for the first time in our lifetimes, we have been universally affected by one event across the globe. And I think having some compassion and empathy for people who come from different backgrounds of you, have different resources than you, have a different viewpoint in life, have different advantages, have had different disadvantages. I, I really hope that we have come to understand each other a little bit better based on what's been happening in the world so far. You brought up rejection. I think when we talk about trauma and the pervasiveness of it, we usually think of it in very uh, overt terms, in terms of uh, sexual abuse, uh, accidents, uh, you know, war, things of that nature. And I think a not enough attention is shined on feelings of rejection, uh, feelings of abandonment, uh, neglect. These are the more overt, more internal struggles that people are coping with. Can you talk to us about rejection and why that is? Uh, you know, I hate the word like small T trauma and big T trauma, why that is traumatizing so that people out there aren't minimizing or diminishing their experiences. Sure. Rejection is such a huge, it's, and I could spend like an entire day talking about rejection. But when we reject people, particularly based on things that they are not able to control, i.e. gender, i.e. race, i.e. socioeconomic upbringing, it feels very personal because it is very personal to that individual who is being rejected. And when we reject people based on factors that they are unable to control, you are striking at the heart of an individual's identity. And when we feel rejected, we're looking for a reason, right? In general, for the most part, our logical mind goes, 
why is this happening? And the next step is, how do I fix that? Because it doesn't feel good. And when there is nothing that you can do and you have zero control, it feels like you are being attacked for who you are. And people take that very personally. And I think that is the reason why rejection is such a difficult thing to cope with because it is inherently personal and you have zero control over why people treat you the way that they do, especially if it's a factor that you have no control over. How do we as individuals not take things personally? What types of things, especially I would imagine kids, I mean, middle school, elementary school, high school, those are, you know, places where we all tribe up, we get in our groups and gatherings. The, the lunch, the lunch time is a time where the jocks are over there and, and the, you know, the, the, the introverts are over there and, you know, everybody separates. What are some of the coping skills that uh, you prescribe for your, your uh, clients? That's a really great question. And it's not as, I wish it was just as easy as, ah, just get over it, you know? Learning to care less about what people think of you is a skill. And growing thick skin is a skill. Um, one of the things that we do as part of like the healing process and part of therapy, which you know about um, cognitive behavioral therapy, really challenging these negative thoughts that we have about ourselves and thoughts that may be being pushed onto us from other people, really challenging whether or not the things that we hear about ourselves and the things that we think about ourselves are true. And when we can really take an objective measure of the thought that we have about ourselves and really really question whether or not what we're hearing and thinking and feeling is true, that is how we fix this kind of negative thought spiral that often happens when we feel like we're rejected. That, yeah. that would be the first thing. I love that. Cause we, we often, you know, especially I would imagine for kids, I mean, adults, we do it too, where if another adult is labeling, labeling you as a B or C, we figure, especially as children, well, they're an adult, so they must know they must be right. Yeah. And unfortunately we don't teach our kids to question. We teach our kids to be good and to listen and to, you know, do as adults tell you to do. And I think the byproduct of that is then the, the, we have kids who are then haven't worked that muscle or haven't practiced questioning the information that they're receiving and then questioning the thoughts and beliefs that they have. have are you finding that? Yes, absolutely. And especially in certain upbringings. Um, mine, for example, my father is Indian. My mom is Hawaiian and Filipino. And this kind of hierarchical structure of not questioning people who are, you know, superior, quote, in air quotes, in the sense that they're your, your um, adult authority figures. And you don't question that. So in, especially within in areas with certain backgrounds and upbringing, you see this in more areas than others, 
But I think that is something that I definitely have seen and continue to see quite a bit. Kids who want to say something and and inherently believe that the way that they think and feel about themselves is not accurate. But then when you're having the adults in your life kind of reinforcing this negative kind of thought spiral, it's very difficult for them to get out of it, um, which is one of the reasons why when we talk about kids specifically and kids in treatment, oftentimes when kids come into my office, they become the identified patient because there's something wrong with them, quote unquote. I actually take a, a more aerial view and say, kids don't exist in a vacuum. They, they exist in a system. And no one individual is responsible for anything that's happening in a household. Every single person that's in a household plays a role one way or another, whether they like it or not. And that means that treatment has to be well-rounded because treating one individual doesn't fix the systemic problem. You're absolutely right. I know I, I grew up in a single parent home and, uh, you know, looking back, I realized that being the oldest growing up in a single parent home, I was parentified early on. And I think that a lot of kids growing up in single parent homes are, um, they have a lot more um, expectations placed on them uh, from a young age and to the point where they feel, or at least I felt the need to push my feelings to the side and just focus on what needed to be done to keep the household uh, running. And then you become, then you become an adult and, the world is asking you to get in touch with your feelings or especially my girlfriend. And I like, now I have no idea how to do that. And, you know, I'm completely out mm -hmm. of whack. Is there something systemically before that, you know, when we have kids in kindergarten, middle school, high school to teach them how to tap into their emotional state? And I think this is such an important discussion to have um, because I fundamentally believe that basic elements of CBT should be taught from a very young age. I don't think it's fair that only certain people with private insurance or can cash pay for individual therapy or seeing a psychiatrist have access to this information, right? I fundamentally believe that these are skills that we should be teaching to everybody. Because when we recognize we have thoughts and feelings and behaviors that go along with those things, we're able to recognize those patterns early and get that knowledge when we're younger. Imagine what a difference that would make, not just for us as kids or young adults or adults, but we often parent the way that we were parented which means that we are perpetuating cycles of upbringing, some of which can be quite detrimental depending on how you've grown up, right? So I, I think one of the deficits of our society that we don't talk about mental health enough and from a young enough age, and I think that's a problem. And I also think that that's probably one of the reasons why we really struggle, especially in times of stress with dealing in a positive way because we've never learned how. You mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. If, you know, I would imagine if, with uh, the pandemic and 
uh, the social political climate being the way it is and parents losing their jobs. A lot of kids are feeling the stress of the family. And so I would imagine a kid has come in and had thoughts about suicide or wanting to end their life. When you've heard that, what is it that you find that the kid really wants or is really trying to say? They want to be seen and they want to be heard. And there is a, a need that they have either known or unknown that is not being met. And I think that the way that we talk about diagnoses and treatment is figuring out where is this coming from, right? Because we can start a medication or start therapy to manage the symptoms. But however, comma, if we're not investigating where this is all coming from, we're missing out on, a, on an opportunity to treat the problem. And I think that's something that's really important to talk about when we talk about treatment. Okay, can you, so what does that protocol look like? You know, the kid comes in and I feel like saying the kid, it sounds dismissive. Uh, a, a, a patient comes in and it, maybe he's 12 and we explore that there are stressors at home. Maybe there's been abuse. Uh, well, we'll subtract abuse from that, but there are just, there are stressors at home. Maybe there's bullying at school. And when does the, the psych, uh, the medical piece come into in, in terms of the psychiatry and the meds and things like that? Because I feel like so many people want to see a psychiatrist, but they're afraid that you're just going to prescribe the meds right off the bat. And, and that's not what they're looking for. And I, I feel like that's not who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think this is also a very important discussion to have. Just because you walk into the office of a psychiatrist does not mean that you're leaving with a prescription. So I think that's something that's important to kind of get straight in the beginning because you're absolutely right. The perception is you go, you go and see a psychiatrist because you want a prescription. Um, and can we prescribe medication? Absolutely. Is that the majority of what we do? Yes. But do we also do other things like clinical assessments and diagnosing and clarifying diagnoses and ruling out medical problems that may be walking around masquerading as depression and anxiety. We do that as well. So I can't speak for all psychiatrists because we all practice a little bit differently, but I can tell you what I do. Like when I see a kid out who's struggling and they come to my office, I see families in three sessions. So I often see either the parents or the kids first for one session. Then I go and see the other, either the parents, whoever I haven't seen yet in the second session. And then in the third session, I meet with everybody and go, you know, this is the perspective that's coming from kiddo. This is the perspective that's coming from family. Where can we fill in the gaps with everything else, all the other puzzle pieces, medical history, family history, birth history, um, all of these other really important school history, all of these other really important factors that make up a robust assessment. And once we have all the information out on the table and we know what we're looking at and we know what we're treating, then and only then do we talk about how that treatment is gonna come about and what that looks like. There are some parents 
to say, you know what, I, we've never done this before. Medication makes me uncomfortable. I would rather start with therapy. And that's where we start. There are other kiddos and families who are like, we've seen multiple therapists. Things have not gotten better. We're not excited about medication, but it's something that we're open to. And then there, are, there is a conversation about what that treatment looks like, whether or not medications are part of that is, is really up to the family. It's not up to me, right? All I can do is give the information and provide as robust of an assessment and all of the information needed to make an informed decision. And ultimately that decision is up to, up to the family and I respect that. Wow, you talked about unmet needs and that's typically what the, the child or the kiddo is wanting, not so much wanting to end their life. And I would assume for most adults, it's the same thing. Um, Anthony Bourdain talked about loneliness uh, before his death and really wanting to be with mm. his uh, family. And I would imagine most parents think that they are providing love. Because like you said, we parent the way we've been parented. And if they haven't seen another, if they haven't been modeled another way of parenting, then they think, well, I made it to adulthood. I'm fine. So let's carry on the tradition. And I would imagine there's a point during that conversation between the parent and the child where the parent realizes that, oh, I've, I didn't realize I was dropping a ball in this area. And then perhaps the kid is realizing that they may have misperceiving what the parents' intentions were. Have you found that? Like once there's clarity, there's connection. Yes, absolutely. And I think, I think that comes from people sitting down and having a conversation with each other. We, when we are not speaking to each other, especially about things that matter, we're operating based on assumption. And assumption is very dangerous because the assumptions we make are based on our own cognitive perspective, our personality, our observations. And there's no room for somebody else to explain their side of it. And I think when you open the door for conversation and you open the door for collaboration, you also open the door for empathy, compassion, and understanding. And that is where true connection lies, is in the fold between my stuff and your stuff. It's the, the magic is in the middle for, for every relationship. It's so important. And I would imagine, too, that a lot of parents have maybe tried to connect and open up with their parents. and maybe the parents responded in a way that hurt the, the child's feelings, which, you know, that's another thing that's not talked enough about also is we talk so much about depression and anxiety or maybe even bipolars getting some, getting some play out there. Uh, but the feeling of being hurt and it's such a small thing, that feeling of being hurt and no one, no one will admit to feeling hurt. And a lot of times as kids, I imagine we don't even recognize when we've been hurt often until maybe a day or two later where you go, oh, that, I can't believe they said that. You know, it's such a subtle, mm -hmm. like a little paper cut. And then the next day it hurts more. Can you talk to us about hurt? And why is that so hard to register? And why don't we admit when we're hurt? Very simple answer. 
answer because of shame and guilt. We are programmed as a society to not appear vulnerable. And that word hurt exposes a lot of negative cognitions, specifically shame, blame, guilt, weakness. And these are all things that as a society, we've been programmed and trained to not recognize. So how does that come out? It comes out as irritability. It comes out as aggression. It comes out as anger. It comes out as, um, you know, sort of substance abuse for some people, for example. It comes out as domestic violence because hurt is weak. Anger and aggression is quote unquote masculine, right? So that is a reason why we avoid that area of, at all costs, because it is programmed in us to appear strong and not be quote unquote weak. I, I, I love that. And um, definitely we have such a, this image of, you know, strong, independent woman or strong, you know, especially for me, I get strong black man. And then you feel, I feel mm-hmm. a need to live up to it. And there's just some days, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to lay on a couch and watch a little sleepless in Seattle. You know, I want to, I want to mm-hmm. finish off a pint of ice cream. Um, yeah. The, I know you had a long day and I appreciate you staying, you know, hanging out a little later than typical. Yeah. Uh, is there, is there anything that we, I know there's a million things we haven't talked about. But is there, is, there, is there one thing that you really want listeners to know who are struggling with mental health or uh, suicidality or, or parents of anything, a message to parents or kids out there? Yes. If, if somebody is expressing that they're struggling, that they're having suicidal thoughts, it is not a cry for attention. It is something to pay attention to. There is a reason this is happening and ignoring the seriousness of that plea can have fatal consequences. I've seen it in my own life. My sister's son committed suicide three years ago after he graduated from high school. Um, So this is like a very real problem that affects very real people. And I think that's really important. I don't want any family member or any child or any individual to say, I didn't take it seriously, and now that person is gone. Because the reality is suicide is a permanent solution to problems that are often quite temporary. So if there's anything that anybody gets from this, if somebody is coming to you with suicidal thoughts and having the courage and the bravery to share that that is something that is happening to them, please listen and know that there is help available. Um, I, I do this every day of my life. I've seen it every day. And I, I am living proof that people do get better. Um, sometimes we all need a little bit of help in whatever form that comes in, either seeing a psychiatrist or a family therapist or group therapy or whatever it is. There is help available if you're willing to ask for it. Don't leave out the goats. <laughs> pet therapy yeah. <laughs> um yeah <laughs> the and i mean, i feel like you kind of answered this question um but in case you have additional because i asked this of all my guests who are listening in uh first of all before i even get into that 
Where can people find you? What, what's the best place to connect with you, plug all your things? Yeah, so I have a lot of really great information on my website. I do a blog and a lot of free educational stuff there. Um, and that's AnjaneeMladiMD.com. And then I'm mostly active on Instagram and Facebook at the same handle, AnjaneeMD. All right. And I'll link to all that in the show notes, as well as a link to your book, which has gotten a full five-star ratings on Amazon. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Last question I ask of all my guests, because I always imagine there is one person listening in who may be on the precipice of, of ending their life. Um, and I also, be, see, because I, I keep thinking about what you said. I love that you phrased that whole like suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary uh, uh, problem or situation. And I love that you threw in, in most cases, because some people are struggling with chronic debilitating uh, diseases or they're, uh, or they're in situations that are spiraling, um, you know, in, uh, in, in a horrible direction in their life. And, and they, that, you know, they feel powerless in a situation. So I love that you said in most cases versus no, everything is a temporary situation and we can, we can bounce back. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you recognizing that, um, there, you know, there are just some situations that are, you know, you have four months to live the diagnosis or, or what have you. Um, but going back to the question, um, one person out there listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life, before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? Think of, if, if you are acutely contemplating ending your life, I want you to seriously think about three things that are worth living for and write them down. I think this is really important because I think in those moments when people feel so hopeless and so sad and so lost and so dark, that there is nothing. I make the argument that there is always something to live for, whether it be tomorrow morning's cup of coffee or a birthday party or a graduation or making scrambled eggs or something. It doesn't have to be anything monumental, but I make the argument that there are things that are worth living for. If you look hard enough, you'll be able to make I love that. Thank you, Dr. Amladi. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. You can call the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or the other host of phone numbers that are in the show notes because I know I have international listeners. If you're in India, if you're in Hawaii, if you're in Puerto Rico, wherever you are in the world, if you're in Sri Lanka, I said Hawaii and Puerto Rican are both, both American. Um, Wherever you are in the world, there are international suicide hotline phone numbers there for you. And I know some of you are in situations where you can't talk. There are chat lines. There are emails. There are groups. There are organizations listed in my show notes that will help you pay for these uh, for different services. So please don't let finances be a barrier. Don't let uh, communication be a barrier. There is someone somewhere out there waiting to listen to you, but you have to make that first step and reach out for help and just say, listen, I, I'm hurting right now. Uh, start there. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. 
Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Omladi. Thank you, Leo.